Bloom, Buddhist Reflections on Serenity and Love by Ajahn Sona. Chapter 5, Breathing in the Noble Path. We recited the Noble Eightfold Path tonight because mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati, is embedded in the path. It's one of the fundamental meditation techniques. We start to see it interweaving from right effort straight through to right samadhi, right concentration. Right effort is the preliminary instruction for what is achieved if we satisfactorily develop right mindfulness. And right mindfulness, satisfactorily developed, is known because it results in right concentration. This is often not clear to people at all. It's as if the path factors are seen as freestanding sections. Remember, they're segments of a path. They actually blend into each other. They feed back to each other. They loop back on each other. They have a similar structure to dependent origination, where you see feedback loops between consciousness, vijnana, and volitions, sankhara. They condition each other. Right effort is to be held in mind as you develop right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is how you develop right effort, and the two of them together, if successful, blend right into right concentration, which loops around and makes right effort all that much easier, indicating that you are, in fact, succeeding in your right effort. A nice image for this is a whirlpool in a stream. You see that the whirlpool is all a single liquid, just water, but it's moving back on itself in a very complex way, reinforcing itself. These last three factors of the path form a little vortex of feedback loops, the development of the higher mind. Mindfulness of breathing is at the core of that. The Pali term anapanasati tells you clearly to understand that this is sati, the factor of mindfulness. And then also there is anapanasati samadhi, So it's the whole of the upper path. I could go on forever on right effort, but then you'd have a whole other talk. I should try to give eight talks just on right effort, but for right now, I'm just going for the Guinness Book of World Records on mindfulness of breathing. Mindfulness of breathing is towards the cultivation of the wholesome. This is so badly confused in general teachings of mindfulness. You need the specific instructions, the full four instructions under right effort. The last two involve the development of not just wholesome, but beautiful states of mind. This is the whole point of the next two Anapanasati steps. You're going to bring into existence this other dimension of consciousness, which is not normal. Your mindfulness is going to be not normal, and your samadhi is going to be not normal. It's going to be supernormal. We all know about subnormal mindfulness. It's rampant. I'm not referring to the present company, of course. I'm talking about little boys in grade two with ADHD on Ritalin. This is subnormal. Well, now it's almost normal. Subnormal is normal. We're slipping. We need a restoration of the capacity to sustain attention. Of course, we see that this is not the general direction we're going. We're entertaining ourselves to death, amusing ourselves to death, and distracting ourselves to death. And it has a deleterious effect on the mind. 
When your mind cannot pay attention, you cannot possibly sustain the beautiful. The beautiful arises out of discipline and lots of practice. It's an aesthetic quality, the opposite of dukkha. This is sukha, happiness. And sukha cannot be understood except as an aesthetic, emotional quality, a refined work of art of the beautiful kind. Not all works of art are of the beautiful kind. Some are of the disturbing kind. Some of the elements of the teachings of the Buddha are disturbing. In fact, he says, people run away from some of the things he says. They find them scary and problematic because their values are being undermined, what they think of as worthwhile. They are being reminded how precarious their situation is in this life, and people often don't want to hear it. The most difficult one to hear is regarding the nature of the self. When your very self, your sense of self, begins to be questioned by a wise, authoritative figure like the Buddha, most people's minds turn away from it. They get the feeling the Buddha is saying they don't exist. Approximately accurate. Don't take that too far, though. That can lead to interesting results. The self is a very interesting natural development of ordinary psychology. It's a fabrication of the mind, and it's very subject to social conditioning. If it goes off the track even a little bit, it can be a very painful experience. It's all basically an hallucination. So we're trying to bring ourselves out of delusory conditions which cause suffering. I'm putting it in a very careful way, not... It causes you suffering. It just causes suffering. It's not that somebody suffers. Instead, there is suffering. There is no somebody that is suffering. There is a misunderstanding, and there is suffering. There's no one behind all these things. There's just misunderstanding, and the consequence is suffering. But that's the only reason you can get out of it. If it was real, there would be no way out. Sometimes you come across this word real. Something's real. This happens in Western philosophy as well. Real ultimately means something that travels through time without changing identity. Something is absolutely the same moment after moment after moment. That is something that is real. When we look around, though, we can't find anything like that. We can't find something that moves through time without change. It's not that reality is non-existent or that it's all a fabrication, but it's of a different nature than things moving through time. Now, this is not just abstract thought. This is only pertinent when you apply it to yourself. This is a very core, strange idea. But it's why there can be sukha. Not somebody is happy, but happiness. Not somebody who is suffering, but suffering. Now, I'm just exaggerating the words. The Buddha says when you're using ordinary language, it's all right to say, I did this and she did that and they feel this way. The only problem is that you take it too literally. It's not the literal case. The fact that you use nouns and pronouns does not mean there is something that the noun is pointing to. It's just a convenient method of talking, 
and you should not give it up because you won't be understood at the grocery store. Back to right effort. First of all, the Buddha is definitely urging you to let go, dismiss, and free yourself from negative emotional states. They are not to be just dwelt in or accepted or watched or sustained or detached from. You can't be detached from negative mental states. You wouldn't have the mental states if you were detached. Attachment is the cause of negative mental states. You're not standing outside of these things. You're involved in them. You can stand outside of the weather. Yes, it can be bad weather and you can be detached from that. You can detach from your relatives, although that's hard. You can detach from your relatives, but you cannot be detached from yourself, from your own emotional problems. That's a big mistake to mix up these two ideas and to think that you can stand outside of your own emotional distress. You can't. That is the definition of attachment and dukkha. You are involved. The next two right efforts are regarding the wholesome, and this is what we're trying to develop in the Anapanasati, to bring into creation that which has not arisen. If the beautiful emotional conditions have not yet arisen, your job is to go and seek them. Find out where they are. You're supposed to go hunting out there for the precious blue flowers. The yellow ones, the blue ones, the red ones. There are all kinds of them. What a nice little task in life, isn't it, to explore for the beautiful, the most beautiful. We spend a lot of time looking for the best piece of pie. I know I have in my life. But there are things beyond that. There are beautiful emotional structures that we're looking for. We hear about them. We hear about love. We hear about joy. We hear about satisfaction. And we think, I'd like that. That sounds good. I wonder what that is. We're supposed to go and pursue this. We are to investigate, reflect, and realize that in order to get that, we can't remain as we are. It means that if we have negative emotional structures or habitual patterns, we have to relinquish them. There is no room for both negative and positive emotions. You can't have the two of them at the same time. Mutually exclusive. So one has to go. That's very adamantly repeated by the Buddha. The negative mind states have to go. He doesn't really care about how sophisticated your method is, Just get rid of it. Put it out of your mind somehow. We're influenced by modern teachings that somehow it's always lodged in your unconscious and you have to deal with it. But the Buddha doesn't look at it that way. He doesn't consider it to be lodged in your unconscious. We're very influenced by a whole lot of psychological speak from our time. And this is not what the Buddha is saying. So what happens is the training effect When you keep continuously dismissing these things and replacing them, they get weaker, and that which replaces them gets stronger, and it gets easier and easier to do that. That's how it works. You don't ultimately unravel the story of your life in Dhammic practice. You don't finally understand yourself. That's not how it works. It's not psychoanalysis over a period of 25 years. That's not what happens. The story fades out. 
You can't even remember what it was, and it doesn't bother you anymore. There's nothing left. It's basically been dissolved, dispensed with, replaced, and that's all. This Anapanasati is the technique for doing this, and it occurs in the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. So the breath is brought into mindfulness of the body, but it occurs in the second foundation as well, mindfulness of feelings, because how do you know you're breathing? You know it through the contact of the actual sensation of breathing. It's very important, actually, that it is sensation, that it's not a visual thing. It has no color and no form. This meditation subject you're taking up, this air that's swirling through you, the vortex again, this is an important part of it. The breath is so interesting because it's partly volitional. You can hold your breath if you want, but when you're just going about your daily tasks, it goes by itself. It's autonomic, but it is within reach of will as well. So it's right on the edge, halfway between volition and nature. Somewhere in the circuits, there are a lot of those areas. You never have to beat your heart. You can speed it up. You don't actually speed it up directly, but if you get angry or something like that, it speeds up. Breathing also. They're right on the edges. I think the Buddha encourages you to watch that. Most people are confused about the outer world and the inner world. Unconsciously, we're trying to manipulate the outer world all the time. We're in a state of tension and stress about the events that are happening, completely independent of our will and of our control. This is really irrational and very problematic because it's just futile. The Buddha is saying you have to learn how to be detached from the events of the world. So he gives you a little exercise to do. Just try breathing without interfering with it. Just watch it because it goes by itself. When you're not paying attention, it goes by itself. When you're sleeping, it goes by itself. You don't have to breathe. It breathes. But when you pay attention to it, parts of you want to interfere. You become self-conscious about breathing. But can you go back to the relaxed observer? Can you sit back and just watch it happen? Can you stand aside from your body? Can you see it functioning by itself? You start to get glimpses of, it's not me. The thing runs by itself. I don't know where it came from or where it's going or how the thing works. It's not me. He's giving you a sense of detachment, an impersonal sense. That's another word, impersonal, anatta, not personal, not self. It just is. How are we going to learn that? How are we going to disidentify ourselves with our body? He gives us little exercises to help. Breathing is one. The third category of right mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind. So we're going to bring that in as well. During our breath meditation, if we want to get to samadhi, we have to purify the mind of such things as the hindrances. Anger, greed, confusion, delusion, fatigue, doubt, etc. So that's what mindfulness of mind is, just knowing what's there. Am I angry or not? Greedy or not? Expansive or contracted? It's just a simple knowing of that. 
That's involved in anapanasati. Whenever we drift from the breath, if any of those aspects of mind come up, then we recognize them, and we're just doing mindfulness of mind. And the last category, as I translate it, is mindfulness of Dhamma categories. The two most important categories are the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment. How is that pertinent to Anapanasati? Mostly, you're not really succeeding in doing breath meditation if any of the five hindrances are present. Anger, greed, agitation, sloth, doubt. If any of them are present, you have not arrived at the full engagement of Anapanasati, which is going towards Anapanasati Samadhi. How does that relate to the seven factors? The factors are what should occur as the samadhi part of mindfulness of the breath. So what you see is mindfulness being purified there. The first factor of the seven factors is mindfulness. Mindfulness of the breath is one type of mindfulness. Mindfulness is purified to the extent that you have set aside the five hindrances. Now, investigation can be investigation of ultimate truths or investigation of where am I in my progress towards samadhi. Am I in the neighborhood? Am I close? Have the hindrances passed? How does it feel? Do I remember how to get here the next time? This is incredibly important. There is a magic amnesia that happens with emotions. You cannot remember how you did it. If you were happy yesterday, do you remember how you did that? All you remember is that you were. It's very hard to snap your fingers and just produce an emotion, but this is actually what you're attempting to train yourself to do, to enter into an emotion as quickly as possible. Samadhi is an emotion. It's a truly profound and positive emotion. That's the core of it. It's nothing to do with concentration of the mind. It's the method for the production of joy in the mind. This is early in the stages of development. Joy in the mind and the flood of well-being throughout the entire body. This is the point of the exercise at this stage, not the clarity of the mind. Yet they're inseparable. Later on, after samadhi has been developed, we're going back to investigation of Dhamma. This is the second of the enlightenment factors. Investigation of Dhamma, Dhamma Vichaya. After samadhi, samadhi lingers, the hindrances are fast asleep, and your mind is unhindered, and it can think and reflect and understand in a much more lucid and luminous way. Realizations can come to you that are profound enough that you will never lose them. They are irreversible realizations. Those are moments of enlightenment. Those are path moments following the experience of samadhi. Samadhi leads to that. Remember the beautiful description of the bodhisattva under the tree? What he does first is he goes to the breath. He goes into the jhanas, comes out of the jhanas, and then after that he investigates. He investigates after the jhana. Then, after the investigation, light arises, awakening arises, all of these similes for emotional liberation. It's not literal light, it's the light of realization. These are the steps, the processes, how it works. I should note that some say the bodhisattva did not emerge from the fourth jhana, 
but that he was able to realize or understand while still in it. This is against the usual commentarial description, but I think it is possibly accurate. Anapanasati Samadhi includes the seven factors. So mindfulness is there, mindfulness of the breath. It's a preliminary investigation, that is, am I doing it right? How's it going? Is the mind stable? Is energy arising? Our life energies are being drained all the time by a lot of confusion, worry, anxieties, always draining us. When you stop doing that, the battery level starts to go up. Don't get me started on batteries. I wonder how they talked about this at the time of the Buddha because they didn't have any batteries. A bucket of water. You plugged the holes in a bucket of water and now the water is rising. Energy and then joy. Joy is a factor of enlightenment. Joy is unabashedly a factor of the awakened mind. It leads to it and it is intrinsic to the awakened mind. Yet, it's not always there. Remember, everything is impermanent, but I want to remind you that there's a huge confusion about being detached from all mental states. Everything arises and passes. Some days you are angry. Some days you're joyful. Don't get attached. As if some days the arahant is angry, a little pissed off at the Buddha. No, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely clear that negative states cease and do not re-arise. Is the arahant's mind impermanent? Yes. What are the contents of the impermanent mind? The factors of awakening. This doesn't mean that they're going to disappear on him. No, they're just going to rotate. Sometimes you're joyful. Sometimes you're tranquil. Sometimes you're so still it's inexpressible. And then you are joyful again. And then energized again. Sometimes you're not speaking. And sometimes you're speaking. Sometimes you have to investigate. So an arahant giving a Dhamma talk has to also formulate means of expression. He or she, when doing this, has to investigate their own experience in order to say, well, it works like this. They have to look and remember how that works. So this is still a function. And they are also mindful. Mindfulness does not leave them. But it's second nature by this time. The mindfulness is always present. They have a very enhanced sense of awareness, self-awareness. So the anapanasati and samadhi are moving through these three last factors of the path. The body is involved. The breath is a body. It's a body amongst the bodies. This is in one of the suttas. There is a body in the body that is called the breath body. There is the sensation of it. You contact air through feeling, touch, pure touch. There is mindfulness of the mind, full awareness of what's going on, and then there is the category of what's going on. Is it the hindrance category or the enlightenment category? This is all taking place while you're doing your breath meditation. You should not get over-concerned about which one is taking place. The preliminary one is given in the instructions. The first one is to become aware of the exhalation and the inhalation, whether it's long or short. This is purely a bodily experience, a physical experience. Next, sustain. 
which I interpret as experiencing the entire duration of the breath. The third and fourth instructions in the first tetrad, experiencing the entire duration of the breath. You can ask yourself, what is my mind doing? Am I paying full, sustained, continuous attention to the breath? Next, the development of the mind, citta nupasana. Also, it's a feeling as well, the pleasant feeling associated with the development of joy. The first emotion of concentration is joy. So mindfulness of feeling and mindfulness of mind are involved in this. Am I joyful or not? And then the last one, the realization. I am experiencing awakening factors here. Joy is an awakening factor. Samadhi is an awakening factor. That's the sixth factor of the seven factors, samadhi. Am I experiencing it? Ah, perhaps now I'm becoming tranquil. I'm feeling very serene. That's the fifth factor of the seven factors. A movement from joy to serenity is quite a natural movement. The more energized factors are the first four, and then it moves to the more resultant factors. I describe the first four factors of enlightenment as pedaling a bicycle and the last three as coasting on a bicycle. So the last three factors of the path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, are completely taken up in breath meditation. You're fulfilling the last three factors of the path in anapanasati samadhi, in this process of breath meditation. This is why it's such a complete teaching, which leads all the way from beginning to arahant. It's possible to use just that teaching to attain full enlightenment. It's a very, very complete package of structures. It's not something separate from the path, and the path is not something separate from it. There are other methods of achieving similar aims in samadhi. There are other types of meditation subjects which can bring you to mindfulness, can develop your mindfulness, and also lead you to concentration. But the breath is a preeminently featured one. It has two aspects to it as well, the second of which is the actual arising of insight path factors. That's the third and fourth of the tetrads of Anapanasati. But I still have three talks to go, so I have plenty of time to unfold the other parts of the path. Mostly, I'm really interested in just developing energy and joy, just lightening up until you're fully here, and then maybe move towards some tranquility. Then just near the end of the retreat, I'll talk about the ultimate point of the exercise— that is, to free yourself irreversibly from distress. So I'll leave these words for you tonight. <laughs> 